0: There are there are situations uh, in people's lives. I don't always believe that they're supposed to be like that. I think they are like that for a reason, so that God can move, so that God can demonstrate His power and His authority. Oftimes, though, uh, we as the people of God are not in a place, or we're not. For whatever reason, we don't allow God to do in our lives what we want to do. Now, I'm not saying that as a condemnation. I'm not saying that as you're not spiritual enough. Please don't take it like that at all. What I am saying is that worldwide, there are situations that I believe God wants to work in, God wants to perform in, but he doesn't. Because the people of God don't step up and do what we're supposed to do. And that is call on the name of Jesus Christ in prayer, in faith believing. Amen. And as a church body, I want us to be known first and foremost as a people of prayer. This, as a house of prayer that we know how to pray, that we know how to get a hold of, of the throne of God in prayer. And there is there is so much going on in our world today that can only be solved by Jesus Christ. He's the only answer. And the situations that we see in the natural are results that are spilling over from the spiritual. Our warfare is, it's spiritual. The results we're looking for are oftentimes in the natural, but we're only going to see them through spiritual means. Amen. Let's call out on the name of the Lord this evening for Michael Rudy, for Brother Bell, for our service today. Lord Jesus, you're an awesome God. I am in all of you this evening. The things that you're desiring to do through your people are overwhelming. Hallelujah, Jesus. I pray, O oh God, that you'd get a hold of our hearts and our minds, that you'd capture our imaginations this evening. Help us to understand who we are in you, the things you desire to do in us and through us. We pray this evening for Michael uh, Rudd. We pray for Brother Bell. We claim healing for each of them in the name of Jesus Christ. We rebuke sickness and disease and infirmity in the name of the Lord God of hosts. We lose healing within their bodies in the name of Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, you purchased our healing on Calvary. You did not take those stripes in vain. Hallelujah, Jesus. We're blaming you for miracles this evening. We have no power over this. We have no authority of ourselves over this. But Lord Jesus, you have our power. You have our authority. You purchased our healings for us. Hallelujah. We're not holding your feet to the fire. We're simply claiming the promises that you gave us. In the name of Jesus Christ. For the remainder of our service, Lord, that you would have free reign here that you would assume control of your service here from this point forward, and that your perfect will would be manifest, that all of your heart would be accomplished in our presence today. Now, all these things we ask in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name we pray. Praise God, praise God. Can I give glory and honor unto the King of Kings this evening? Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus, you are almighty God. You are a wondrous Savior. And we heap unto you all glory and all honor, all worship and all praise. Hallelujah, Jesus. You are all ready to receive it. Thank you, Jesus, for your presence in this place and for the manifestation of your presence here today. Hallelujah, Jesus. Praise God. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for tarrying. Thank you for uh, responding to God's presence. You can be seated. I trust everyone had a pleasant Father's Day. Uh, I hope so. I did. I got to paint and move, and uh, it was good. (laughs) Had a quick meal in there. So, amen. <clears throat> Thank you so very much. You gave me a Father's Day gift as a church that completely blew me away. Uh, what a what a generous giving church. Thank you so very much. Uh, it went toward paint and paint supplies. We put it to good use. Amen. So thank you so very much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That's all I know how to say to that. (laughs) Uh, We're going to start a new series this evening. Uh, We have alluded to this topic time and time again in various messages, not just me. Uh, Others that have have stood behind this pulpit have alluded to this, this topic as well. <clears throat> and we have alluded to it in more of a theoretical, what does the Bible have to say about it kind of presentation, but during this service I want to get more, uh, get our hands a little bit dirty with it, uh, and figure out a more practical hands-on application aspect to spiritual warfare. We will be talking for the next several weeks on spiritual warfare, and spiritual warfare is—it's something that as soon as we're born into the body of Christ, we enter into this. Uh, it's something that we kind of get drafted into automatically, whether we want it or not. We get kind of thrown into the middle of it, and we do. Are new converts a disservice by not letting them know that uh, the the idea that everything is just going to be fine now, things are definitely going to be better now. Uh, there's no doubt about that. But to to think that my life is going to be perfect from this point forward is it's a rude awakening when you realize that that's not the case. I would have rather that someone told me up front and that would have been just fine. Fair enough. Okay. I can, I can deal with that. Better is better. Better is good for me. Uh, but I got it in my mind that, you know, I was just one step away from the gates of heaven and uh, things are just, you know, Jesus is on my side and he's fighting my battles. And, and so I, I really don't have anything to worry about from this point forward. And that's, just simply not the case. He is on my side, and he is fighting my battles. However, uh, it's a battle, and all that that entails. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5 states this: For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ Now warfare in general we get uh, when we think of warfare Fight, someone fighting a battle, someone being a soldier on the front lines, uh, hoofing it, you know, 20 mile ruck march, you know, whatever, whatever comes to mind. All kinds of images can come to our minds and that's based, you know, somewhat on the era we grew up in. Uh, my grandparents, for example, uh, they grew up during World War II. So their ideas of war, were quite a bit different than, than my experiences. They thought of great big campaigns and, you know, D-Day, Europe invasions, and, and Nazi Germany, and all of these things, uh, food stamps, rations. Everything was, you know, wartime production. Every resource in the United States was geared toward supporting our troops overseas. That's, that's the way it was. And my dad's generation, he was more, uh, kind of between Korea and Vietnam. And so he, uh, when he thinks of war, it's more like Hogan's Heroes or, uh, Gomer Pyle, TV shows he grew up with. And, uh, he never saw combat. He trained for it, but he never saw any. And so his ideas was a little bit different than his parents. But most people, when they think of war, despite all of the, you know the, the light-hearted, humorous shows and, and, and kind of romanticized books or stories that we can find about war, when people think about war. They don't think of anything pleasant. They think of hardship. They think of people being separated from their families. They think of people being shot and killed, wounded for, for the rest of their lives. And so these images, these ideas that come to our minds when we think of war are going to color our understanding and our ideas of spiritual war. I found another poem, and uh, I think this this probably sums up what I think of war uh, on a serious note. It starts like this: If I don't make it home, please remember it wasn't because I didn't try. The last thing I wanted was to make you cry. I wanted more than anything to make it back to you, but there was a job I just had to do. As you were sleeping through the night, we woke to the sound of gunfire. I knew this would be my last fight. It's my job to keep you safe and free, and to do that, I will give every ounce of me. I am a soldier who will defend until the very end, but that comes at a cost that I know I can't mend. I know I broke my promise to be here to wipe away every tear. You've cried a million of them every time you wished I were still here. Please forgive me for leaving you so soon, but my country called and needed me too. So when we think of people going off to war, we think of sacrifice. We think of commitment. Sometimes the ultimate commitment. In the New Testament, we see a lot of analogies being used referring to the Christian as a soldier. Now, I'm speaking to several men here who have prior military service. So, a lot of you guys will understand a lot of this. There are stark differences between peacetime and a time of war. Again, if we look back to World War II, the differences in economic policies. Economic policies before and after World War II were largely laissez-faire. They were largely uh, capitalism. Private companies would produce things, uh, and they would largely determine price, Consumers would determine demand, etc., etc. But during World War II, that really wasn't the case. The government kind of assumed control of a lot of things, a lot of production, a lot of factories. And factories, uh, in Eau Claire, there's a Presto plant. They used to make, uh, well, they're known for making cooking utensils, cooking things. Uh, but during World War II, they were making munitions. Not really what they were designed to do, but they were refitted and they produced munitions for the wartime effort. So all of these, these economic policies were way different than they were previous to World War II. Differences in diplomacy. In peacetime, diplomacy is kind of a big deal. And every word matters. Every word a diplomat uses carries a whole slew of meaning. So they have to be very careful as to what they're saying. In wartime, if there's any diplomacy at all, it's trying to institute either a ceasefire or peace. And if they can't do that, there's probably no communication going on, if at all. Differences in our society. In peacetime, everyone kind of pursues their own thing. And I see nothing real wrong with that. You know, some people are interested in education, they'll go off and get a degree. Other people are interested in getting a job, provide for a family, they're going to go off and do that, etc., etc. Taking care of their family, taking care of their immediate concerns. But in wartime, things are a little bit more focused. Everyone is focused on the news. Everyone is listening to the radio. Everyone is trying to to figure out what's going on overseas. And so, and again, this is during World War II. This doesn't really apply to the police actions that we have today. Actual declared war. So our society is, is really focused then. On this one thing. When neighbors get together. To talk about stuff. They're not talking about the baseball game so much. The weather so much. They're talking about. Yeah my boy is over in in, uh, France right now. He's serving. Wherever. Oh yeah I got a boy over there. In uh, Africa. Yeah. Fighting Rommel. an interesting character. Anyway, it's neither here nor there. Uh, so these differences apply. All of these differences kind of sum up this. In peacetime, there's not a lot of focus. There's there's just kind of this haze. Everyone kind of does what they want to do, does their own thing. Not necessarily bad, but that's kind of the way it is. But in wartime. Things kind of come together. People work as a group, as a team, toward a common goal. The economy. Everyone's banding together to make whatever we need to support the boys overseas. And so, the differences are—they're are, pretty stark between a peacetime and a wartime. The differences between a peacetime army and a wartime army. Are huge. A peacetime army, uh, most of us who have served, uh, we served during a peacetime army, by and large. Uh, we trained, we trained a lot, but we never actually saw any combat. And so, in the soldier's mind, that was always in the back. That was always in the back of my mind. We're not actually going to war. We're not actually fighting. We're training for it. And some of us, especially when I was really young and just got to my unit, I would have jumped at the chance to, to go kill a commie. That was a thing back when I was in. Uh Not so much anymore. But as I progressed and got closer and closer to my ETS state, I wasn't so interested in killing commies anymore. I just wanted to get out, get back home. Did my, I did my thing, I did my tour, and I want out. So, in the peacetime army, we were all kind of thinking that way, at least the people I hung out with. But in a wartime army, their thoughts are entirely different, aren't they? When they train, they're a little bit more committed. Because they know, I'm going into combat. I'm going to have to use this stuff for real. So there's a huge difference between a peacetime and a wartime army. The first thing that we need to understand about uh, warfare in general is that soldiers must be trained. There are some sayings that some of us have heard. Uh, the more you sweat in training, the less you'll bleed in combat. Training should be so hard that the real thing seems easy. These are kind of pithy sayings, but there's a lot of truth in them. Training should be taken very seriously. The training that soldiers receive, It is intended that they're going to use it in real combat situations. When we train soldiers, we train as if they are going to combat. Transforming a civilian into a soldier is a multifaceted process. And when you stop and and think about it and break it down, it's really quite ingenious. It's really a fascinating process. There's certainly a physical aspect to it. You take a a civilian, 18 year old civilian, just graduated high school. I lived on a hobby farm, so I was, I was fairly, you know, I kept busy. I was, I was fairly active. Uh, people coming in today, not so active. There uh they got they got this active and this active and that's really about it. And so uh that's that's got to be a rude awakening. But even though I was active, uh <laughs> I did like two hundred and fifty push ups my first day. Not all at once, but just kind of throughout the day, and I was shot. That that hurt. That hurt me, uh, but I was 18. I woke up in the morning, and I was fine. <sighs> I miss that. I so miss that. <clears throat> but at the end of the eight weeks, I looked different. My my gut was a little thinner. My chest was a little broader. My face was a little bit more taut. <laughs> I was sporting a brand-new haircut. I looked a little bit different. Same guy, but different. The psychological process, and this is what really fascinates me about this whole, uh, turning a civilian into a soldier. It starts right away. Right away. When they picked me up at the, at the reception station, they were my best friends, these, these, uh, these brown hat things. And they were asking, "Y'all, oh, hey, where are you from?" "Oh, yeah, yeah, I know." You know, just chatting it up. I was like, "Oh, is this is going to be great." My guard was completely down. And the cattle truck stopped, and just like that, my best friend turned on me. He wasn't my friend anymore. He was yelling words I'd never heard, and uh, he was very angry. He was a very angry man. <laughs> and it freaked me out it per- I was self-shocked but that's part of the process that's breaking someone down so that they can build them back up and I realized that later and it's a really fascinating process but at the time I didn't, I didn't care how fascinating it was it scared me to death there's a social aspect to it. Again, in, in the, the civvy world, you know, I, I have a circle of friends and that's, that's basically it. But now this whole platoon is, is, I've, I've become very close to all of these people. And it's, it's really weird that, you know, someone from an entirely different, you guys are going to laugh at me. But I grew up in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, okay? I graduated in the 80s. And I had seen... Brother Parker, you're going to really laugh at this. I had seen... I had actually talked to one black person. That was it. And one Hmong person in elementary school. And that's the only exposure I had to anything else other than sour cream white. And so... And so when I got in the army, the army was this huge mixing pot. And I, there were people from Chicago, there were people from New York, there were people from, you know, all over the place. And they were, they were using this weird, like, homeboy. I'd never heard homeboy. I thought it was someone that grew up on a farm. I was like, okay, that, yeah, I, I grew up on a farm, that, okay. (laughs) I didn't have a clue what they were saying. And, but, all of these people with these radically different backgrounds, we bonded. We became best friends. And and it was because of the, the situations that we were facing together, the scenarios that they would place us in or, or make us go through. It was a fascinating process. But at the end of basic, soldiers need to understand who they have become. They need to understand that they're not civilians anymore. You're not a civilian anymore. You don't act like a civilian. You don't talk like them. You don't look like them. You're a soldier now. You're not the person you were eight weeks ago. You're an entirely different person now. At the end of boot camp, they need to know their job. Their training has to be sufficient so that they can go to a permanent duty station and jump in and start working. They need to know their equipment, whatever they need for their specific job. But, as Brother DeMuth has said, everyone's secondary MOS is 11 Bravo, a grunt, an infantryman. No matter what your job is, your training to fall back as a infantryman. And so you need to know how to suit a rifle, clean a rifle. You need to know how to pack a ruck and carry it 20 miles to some stupid location that doesn't matter, and then carry it back. And you need to be able to do these things in addition to your normal job. You need to know how to camp out. You need to know how to do maneuvers. None of these things you would have been exposed to otherwise. But in eight weeks, you got to learn all of it and know it well. Something else a soldier needs to know is their enemy. I don't remember getting a whole lot of this in boot camp. We did it later on. Understanding the enemy's tactics, how he maneuvers, the equipment he uses. They need to understand that. Another thing the soldier needs to understand is chain of command. A soldier needs to have an understanding of authority. And this is something else that we've touched on from time to time, is authority. There is a chain of command in the armed services, and it is very, uh, how do you say it? It's very plain, very easy to understand, it's very... Cut and dry. There we go. That's what I'm looking for. It's very cut and dry. There's there's not a lot of gray area. Everything's very well defined. The major is in charge of the captain, but is subordinate to the colonel. Always. That doesn't change. I suppose it could. Maybe. But those few exceptions don't count. Never change. The sergeant gets to tell the private what to do. The first sergeant gets to tell what the sergeant what to do, etc., etc., etc. And so the chain of command is is very important. It's very important for this main reason. In wartime, you don't have time to, to get a committee together and put things to a vote. You don't get to do that, Okay. You don't get to voice your opinion. Yeah, that's a good idea, Sarge, but maybe we should try this instead. Bullets are whizzing around, explosions. The sergeant might be tempted to shoot the private so we can get on with the mission. Hopefully he doesn't. But in any case, there, in wartime scenarios, you can't do that. The chain of command is there for, that's a very good reason for it. The sergeant says, we need to fall back to this position, we need to flank, and then you guys attack, and we're going to come from the front. Okay, go. And they need to know what was just said. They need to know how to perform what was just said. And go out and do it. Maybe there is a better way to do it. Maybe there is. But the fact of the matter is, we need a decision now. We need to act now. And this is the guy that makes the the call. The private is not the person to make the call. When I was a private, I wanted to make the call. I thought that, Sergeant, man, really? Really? But one, I didn't want to do push-ups. And two, I didn't want to be responsible for the decision. Because the guy that was telling him what to do, I didn't want to talk to him at all. So I'd rather talk to the sergeant or listen to the sergeant and do what he said. But when I became a sergeant and I had to make the call, then I was glad I didn't try to (laughs) Try to do something stupid when I was a private the chain of command is there for a reason submitting to authority is what you learn first after you've learned to submit to authority then you're ready to assume some authority but all through the chain of command You will be submitted to authority. You will be under authority. You will have authority. That's the way it is. And as soon as you remove yourself from the chain of command, now you don't have anyone over you anymore, right? Well, in this chain of command, you don't. For example, I'm not in the army anymore. Nobody from the army can tell me what to do. They have no authority over me, but now neither do I have authority over any privates. I don't have any authority either. So that's what happens when you remove yourself from the chain of command. Yeah, you don't have to answer to anyone anymore, but you have no authority now either. And that's going to prove fatal. We need authority. We need to submit to authority. Because we need to have authority. Soldiers need to learn to trust their superiors. To obey without hesitation every lawful command. And to use the chain of command when an order is unlawful. There's a process for everything. God is a God of order. He's a God of law. He wants things done decently and in order. The soldier needs to know where they fit into the chain of command. Not just rank structure, but organizational structure. I'm 1st Battalion, 319th Field Artillery, Airborne. Such-and-such Brigade such-and-such such corps, etc., etc. Another thing the soldier needs to understand is that this requires complete commitment. Being a soldier is not a hobby. It's not a nine-to-five, double-time-for-overtime career choice. It's something quite unique. Now, <laughs> I was in the Army and later on I was in the Air Force. The culture difference there is, it's pretty drastic. Uh, the Air Force was, I was glad at that stage of my life I went into the Air Force. That was pretty nice. I was at a command post, nice chill air conditioned office, and that was good. But when I was nice and young, I was in the army, out in the field all the time, eating MREs. Hua, hua, hua. That was good. And so, uh, and so I have no idea what I'm trying to say here. <laughs> Thank you. Sister Parker knows where I'm going. <laughs> all right. So. the Air Force is a little bit double time for overtime. (laughs) A little bit. But typically when you think of a a career soldier or the Marines or uh, a special operations unit, uh, they are not. They are fully committed to this. Their training reflects it. Their bearing reflects it. Their esprit de corps reflects it. If you talk to... Uh, a regular, uh, some of my friends in in basic training, people that went off into, like, a a regular duty station. Yeah, they were in the Army, but they were going to go to college, and, and that's really what they were focused on. I found it interesting, I didn't like the Marines when I was in the Army, for a lot of reasons, uh, But one thing I always respected about the Marines was that they were proud to be a Marine. They're always a Marine. Yep. And I respected that. And later on, I kind of envied that. When I was in the Army, I had that to a a point. Uh, I was in an airborne unit, and so we got to do a few things that, The regular army guys didn't get to do. And so, uh, those experiences, those scenarios that we, uh, that we got to work through bonded us together. And I really, I really missed that, brother Richard. I missed that when I went into the Air Force. That, that feeling of esprit de corps, that feeling of, uh, you know, we're in this together, no matter what. And, Because in the Army, we went as a whole unit. If we deployed somewhere, we would deploy as a whole battery, sometimes a whole battalion. And in the Air Force, they take a few people from here, a few people from here, a few people from there, and then get them together and and send them off somewhere. I was like, I have no idea who you guys are. Well, that's okay. We don't know who you are. (laughs) So, So it was a little different. But it's a complete commitment. It's 24-7, 365. We can be called up at any time. Two in the morning on a Saturday. The battalion commander can, can send the call down and activate the unit and we, we deploy somewhere. <clears throat> if we were on DRF-1, uh, we were packed up. We had our howitzers packed up and ready to, to airdrop and we were on one hour call. So if the call came, in one hour we had to be on a plane heading somewhere. In 18 hours we had to be anywhere in the world. That's how we lived. Soldiers need a good reason as to why they are going to war. When a soldier volunteers for war, there's a reason for it. Now in World War II... It was primarily, uh, at least from what I can tell, <laughs> wasn't there, um, peer pressure. Society, and especially in World War I, too, the women would shame the men that, that wouldn't enlist, that wouldn't volunteer to go. And so everyone did. Uh, it's kind of interesting. I don't know if that's World War II. I know World War I, they did that a lot. But... Uh society was really uh pushing people to enlist. They had all the all the signs, you know, Uncle Sam wants you, and uh, you know, these, these propaganda posters of, of Japanese soldiers with horrific faces and and Nazis with you know looking like monsters. And so uh everyone wanted to go the larger issues really weren't at play. You know, uh, freedom, democracy, that was what was touted. But for the average line soldier, I don't know so much that they were thinking about freedom and democracy so much as more personal things. At the end of everything, then as far as well as today, Today, that, that really isn't in play, this freedom and democracy idea. The average soldier today, I don't think, really believes that. <clears throat> We're fighting for oil companies. We're fighting for uh, corporations. We're fighting for something else other than that. So what soldiers fight for primarily is the buddy next to them. That's how it ends up being. These high, lofty ideals that are touted, uh, you know, deliver Europe, deliver France. Okay. I mean, we would love to see that, but I'm not going to deliver France. What can I do to save Europe? What I can do is protect my buddy. What I can do is keep my, my section or my squad safe. That's what I can do. And so that's that's what it kind of becomes. I'm fighting for my, my buddy to the left and to the right of me. Soldiers going to war need to understand the possible price. I'm not talking about a peacetime enlistment. I'm talking about shipping off to war. That soldier is going to come face to face with their own own mortality. They hit the front lines. The bullets start flying, the bombs start going off, they're going to get real philosophical real fast. And I don't say that facetiously. They're going to come face to face with their own mortality, and they're going to have to work through that real time. They're going to have to work through that while the bombs are going off and the bullets are whizzing by. You will come to realize if you, if you go through enough of them, that you live through engagements that others don't come home from. Your buddies die and you survive. And that, that's a whole phenomenon right there as well. Survivor's guilt. Better people than you. More experienced people than you. Better people who've lived better lives than you. Get shot by some stray bullet. And I made it out without a scratch. How is that even right? How does that make sense? And people have to work through that. Now, all of these things that we're talking about this evening, I'm using natural examples, but they're all going to apply in the spiritual as well. In spiritual warfare, all of these things will come into play. there is no room for hesitation or doubt on the battlefield. Hesitation and doubt will spread like a plague until it has infected everyone around you. And that's bad, because hesitation and doubt can get you and everyone else killed. If you're supposed to charge... And because of fear or whatever, you're locked in place? Well, we need you out there. But you're still back here. That's not going to work. Now the rest of the people out there have to pick up the slack. You cannot hesitate when someone issues a command. You cannot doubt that it's the right one. Or someone dies. If this seems a little heavy, I apologize. But like I said, this is going to apply in the spiritual as well. And we're not talking about just physical lives when we conduct spiritual warfare. We're talking about people's eternity then. Not in the U.S., but in in a lot of other countries, they have a mandatory period of time where you have to serve your country in the armed services. Mandatory service. Israel is one of those countries. Every legal adult is required to serve two years in their armed services. The kingdom of God is another one of those countries that have that mandatory service for all citizens. As Christians, we are required to serve in the armed services, spiritually speaking. Soldiers need to understand that It's life and death. And this gets real heavy real quick. As a soldier on the front lines, your job is to kill the enemy before the enemy kills you. That's really what it boils down to. It's violent. It's horrific. It's all of those things. But that's the job. The enemy is not going to show you any mercy. He's not going to offer you any quarter. There are no Geneva Conventions in spiritual warfare. He plays by no rules except to win. If we fail to conquer the enemy and take from him, he's conquering and taking from us. Now, when we talk about engaging the enemy in a spiritual sense, we're not talking about simply pushing him back. We're not talking about simply surviving his assault. We're not talking about defending the position. Not at all. We're talking about advancing. We're talking about taking everything from Him. We're talking about completely destroying His ability to conduct war. That's what we're talking about. This is not a defensive engagement, folks. Not not in any stretch of the imagination. This is pure offense. That's what this is. It's offense. We need to conquer and take from Him. Everything. Everything. Now, the unique characteristics of spiritual warfare kind of put a little bit of a slant on some of these things. 2 Corinthians 10.3 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. So, obviously, everything that we're talking about in the natural does not apply specifically in the spiritual. To say it another way, I'm not going to go out with my M16 and search shooting sinners. Okay? That's not what I'm going to do. Even if you want to, you're not going to. Okay? We are going to do that in the spirit. In the natural... We minister to the sinner. We love the sinner. Why is that? Because Jesus does. Jesus loves the sinner. He loved me. He loved me when I hated him. When I hated his laws and would not abide by Scripture, he loved me. I can't do any less for anyone else. What he did for me I need to be able to reciprocate that. But in the spirit, the spirits behind them, the spirits who are speaking to them and working through them, them I hate. And them I'm going to seek to destroy. This warfare is conducted using spiritual tools. Second Corinthians Chapter 10, verses 4 and 5 says, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. We have spiritual weapons. We have spiritual armor. These spiritual tools are to be used to conduct spiritual war. Okay? Just like in the natural... We're issued M sixteens, we're issued flak vests, we're issued BDUs, (laughs) LPCs, leather personnel carriers. Uh all of these things, standard issue stuff. We need to learn how to use them, we need to learn how to maintain them, and all of that. In the spiritual, we are issued standard equipment stuff that we need to know how to use. We need to know how to maintain. Because these weapons are what will grant us victory. We can't send a soldier to the front line with a, a, a butter knife and a picture of their girlfriend. <clears throat> that would not be good. Okay? That's not going to go, for, they're not going to get very far against grenades and bombs and bullets. So, Jesus issues us weapons. He issues us armor. He issues us all of the tools and equipment that we're going to need to conduct this spiritual war. We need to know how to use them. We need to know what they are, how they're used. This warfare is ever-present. This war has been waging since the Garden of Eden. Okay, It's been going on for a long time. At least as far as we've been involved. And it will only be concluded once and for all when Jesus Christ casts Satan into hell and eternity begins. From now until then, there will be various aspects of spiritual war. This war was going on long before I was born. And said, the Lord Terry, it will go on long after I'm gone. Immediately following our new birth experience, we are drafted into this war. We mentioned that earlier. Whether you want to be or not. You used to be on Satan's side. That's where I used to be. He was my master. And I did everything I was told. I had no choice. I was a slave to sin. When Jesus freed me, now he's my master. But he's not happy and he wants me back. Okay? He wants us back. And so, he is going to do everything he can to get us back. And it doesn't matter what it is. It can be drugs and alcohol, it can be pornography, or it can be something as benign and simple as working too much and staying out of church, affecting your prayer life to the point where you become lukewarm. He really doesn't care what it is, as long as I find something to get you back. Everyone has a chink in their armor. Everyone has something that we struggle with, a weakness. And he'll attack that weakness when he finds it at the most opportune time. Not after a red-hot prayer service. Not after you've gotten uh, uh, a refilling of the Holy Ghost. When you're tired and all alone and distracted. When you're at your weakest, that's when he comes. Because he's not fair He's not in it for for the the glory or the points. He's in it for the victory, the win. He wants to win. So he'll get it any way he can. That's the strategy of the enemy. He doesn't care what tool it is. He doesn't care what weakness you have. It's all just the same to him. It really doesn't matter. Something else we need to understand about our enemy is he doesn't take vacation. He doesn't get bored. He doesn't get distracted. This is what he does. This is all he does. That's the enemy we fight. We need to understand that the stakes are spiritual. We are fighting for no less than the salvation of the lost and the perfection of the saints. People's eternal destinies will be determined by how we conduct this war. Now, let me say something. Uh, People's salvation is not entirely dependent on you. Okay? I've had people tell me that if you just pray harder... This person would be saved if you just fast more. This person would be in church today, and I, I'm not sure that's the case. Okay, uh, there is there is an element uh, involved with free free will too. Okay, ultimately we have to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, but what I am saying is we do have a responsibility to our to our community. We do have a responsibility to those around us who don't know Jesus Christ to introduce them to Jesus Christ. It's our responsibility through prayer and fasting to make sure that their heart is as fertile as we can possibly get it. The fallow ground is broken, plowing before the planter. We go into a community and we pray and we fast and we we do prayer walks. We get the soil ready. Okay? Okay. Those are things that we are responsible for. We are supposed to be praying and fasting. As far as strongholds in a community, and we'll talk about strongholds. The strongholds are there for a reason. Because we haven't torn them down. In the Old Testament, toward the end of Joshua's life, Everything that he God had given Israel had not yet been conquered. Why was that? Did God give them too much to do? I don't believe that's true. I think it was God's perfect will for them to take all of it. Otherwise, he wouldn't have said, take all of it. But for one reason or another, they didn't. And we see later that God was displeased with that. And He said, Okay, from this point on, I'm not going to give you victory over them. They're going to stay. They're going to be thorns in your side. And they're going to prove you and test you and see whether or not you'll serve me or no. In this day and age, church. We have got to step up to the, and that sounds wrong, I don't mean it like that. We have got to assume the authority that God has given us. We have got to assume the, the rightful place as children of God. When something happens in our community, instead of, oh yeah, they're doing that again. Oh yeah, man, I, I wish, I wish they would stop doing that. We don't have to wish. We don't have to hope. God has given us dominion in this city. God has given us power and authority in this city. He's given us the city. He's given it to us. But there's still a battle that needs to be waged to actually possess it. And that's our responsibility. And throughout this uh, series on spiritual warfare, I hope to give us some tools to maybe challenge our thinking a little bit, challenge my thinking for sure, as to uh, what we can and can't do in the kingdom of God. We can do a whole lot. We can do a whole lot. In conclusion, we have an enormous responsibility or if you prefer, an opportunity to represent Jesus Christ as a soldier of his kingdom. We are to endure hardness as a good soldier. We are to put on the whole armor of God. We are to take up the weapons of our warfare and begin pulling down strongholds, casting down imaginations, and bringing thoughts captive. This is the heritage of the children of God. To be more than conquerors through him that loved us. This is our heritage. It's our right as his sons and daughters to go out and possess the city. To tear these things down that the enemy has built up. We are not powerless against the enemy. He has no dominion. He has no power or authority over us. We have over him. Through Jesus Christ. When we learn how to use that, effectively, we are going to go out and we are going to conquer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's all stand. Jesus, you are an awesome God. You are a mighty King, and we do heap glory and honor unto you.